Welcome to Bill and Tony's Excellent Adventure in Music. Here are your hosts, Bill Fraser and Tony Sartu. Welcome to Bill and Tony's Excellent Adventure in Music. I'm Bill. And I'm Tony. And we are going to explore our love for music by sharing some facts and our thoughts on some of the best albums from the most recent Rolling Stone Top 500 album list. And today's album is Born to Run by Bruce Springsteen. That's better, Tony. At the end of the last episode, you were so unexcited. That's so much better. <laughs> well, you know, I was thinking about that. And I, when we get to my personal history, I'll tell you why that was uh, less than enthused. Okay. All right. Fair All enough. Right. So, Born to Run was released on August 25th of 1975. In the 2003 Rolling Stone list, it was number 18. In the 2012 list, it was also number 18. And then in the 2020 list, it was number 21. So, it's maintained its position uh, in the around the top 20. So, as a really well-respected album, according to Rolling Stone. So, some I don't basics- know. That sounds that sounds like some 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 hedging your your comments there, Tony. I don't know. That's sounding like you're not a, a, in agreement here. So let, let, let's save it. But I, I don't know. I'm I'm sensing something. Well, spoiler alert. I've come around on it. You okay. know. All right. Um. So I actually do like this album. Uh. So basic sales information. It sold has sold 9.1 million copies worldwide since it, its release, and it peaked at number three on the charts and. Uh, was number three for two weeks behind Wish You Were Here from Pink Floyd and Wind Song by John Denver. John Denver. Wow. Yeah. So, um, Bill, why don't you tell me your personal history with Born to Run? So Born to Run uh, was not an album that I was very familiar with. I knew like some of the hits from the album. Specifically, I knew Born to Run. Um, beyond that, I've seen Bruce live a couple of times. I've, I've heard him do the hits from that album. I've heard him do the big songs that everybody loves from that album. And I didn't maybe know all of the nuanced songs. It's it's actually one of Chris's favorite albums. Uh, so shout out to my beautiful wife who absolutely loves Bruce Springsteen. And that album is one of her favorites. So um, she's actually someone who got me to like Bruce Springsteen a little bit more because I knew Bruce from the Born in the USA. And I love that album, but it was Bruce kind of transitioning from the kind of poety early stuff to being a little bit more mainstream with Born in the USA. And I, and I love the album. It was a great album, but um, I think Born to Run has definitely got a lot more to say. I don't know if I agree. I think Born to Born in the USA is sort of underrated as an album, which is crazy to say. Because, it is, is kind of crazy to say. Yeah. But, but it's underrated uh, artistically because of, you know, it's enormous success and, and all that stuff. It, it's, a gr- I, it's a great album as well. It is. Yeah. I, I just, I think it's, a little bit more commercially favorable. So yeah. So my history, um, I moved to Jersey in '84, as we've talked about before, and and I don't know if you'd agree, but some people would say that I'm a bit of a contrarian. And when we moved oh, here, you, in 84, Tony, not you. Yeah, no, no, really, I'm I'm a contrarian. No, come on. So when when I think about what I, the things that I like, I think about them in the context of when I started to like things. So, you know, why am I a Yankees fan? Well, you know, the Yankees weren't good in the mid eighties. They were okay. They were terrible. <laughs> but the Mets were dominant. So guess what? I hate the Mets. I don't hate the I don't love the Yankees because they were good. I hate I, I prefer the Yankees because I didn't want to be a Met fan. Th- those those eighties Yankees were terrible. Yeah. Like they had Don Manningly and Dave Winfield and that was it. 
Why am I a Jets fan? I'm not a Jets fan for any other reason than the Giants were good in the mid-80s when I moved here. So when I moved to Jersey, the last thing in the world, in the year that Born in the USA comes out, the last thing in the world I'm going to be interested in is Bruce Springsteen. So that's kind of why I had that lukewarm reaction yesterday. It's just kind of reflexive all my life, you know. That, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. But I have to say that, um, oddly enough, one of my top 10, possibly top five favorite songs of all time is on this album. I'm not going to tell you which one. I don't want to give it away for the draft. But I came around on Springsteen and started to listen for one reason. Mike and the Mad Dog. (laughs) Mike and the Mad Dog. So Mike and the Mad Dog are a sports radio hosting team that basically invented the format of sports radio. And these guys, you know, were amazing. And they would spend hours sometimes talking about Springsteen songs and they'd have the same conversation over and over again. So them talking about with such passion, arguing about their favorite Springsteen songs finally got me to check it out. And I got to say, you know, all the songs that they were arguing about generally were from born to run. And it, I came around to them and thank you to Mike and the mad dog. All right. Well, I, who, who knew that Mike and the mad dog were going to be the inspiration for Tony's t- Tony's undying appreciation for Bruce Springsteen. Good afternoon, Billy. How are you today? How are you doing out there in, uh, in Connecticut doggy? <laughs> All right. So I guess that covers our personal histories with Bruce Springsteen and born to run. So Bill, why don't you tell us what was going on at the time that this album was getting made? So 1975 was a very interesting year. So we, we've done a few 70s albums and 75 right, right in the middle, right? So middle of the decade. First and foremost, you've got Gerald Ford as president, right? So he is the replacement for Richard Nixon, who got who got ousted as president. The Vietnam War ends April 30th of 1975. So what had been going on for 20 years comes to an end. To give you a little context as to what it was like cost of living wise in 1975, a quart of milk, Tony, 46 cents. A loaf of bread, and it, well, I was going to say in a stick of butter. <laughs> of course. <laughs> a loaf of bread. 33 cents. So very, very like telling as to, you know, how different it was then and how much inflation has happened over the, over the you know, past almost 50 years, right? Microsoft was created. In addition to Microsoft being founded in 1975, VCRs were developed in 1975. You've got VHS and Betamax both being developed in 1975. In the movies, Jaws was the first big movie blockbuster that really came out in 75 and was at the time the highest grossing movie of all time. You also have One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Young Frankenstein, The Godfather Part Two, and Tommy. On Broadway, a chorus line debuted. TV, you've got The Six Million Dollar Man, which I remember having The Six Million Dollar Man lunchbox going, oh, going, yeah, going to sure. grade school. Dude, I, I, yep. I carry that thing everywhere. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that show. Um, the Jeffersons, All in the Family, Good Times, MASH, Carol Burnett's show, all big on TV at the time. First joint U.S. and Soviet space mission, the Apollo docking with the Soyuz uh, happened in 1975. So first collaboration really kind of after the Cold War, it was really starting to be a little bit of collaboration happening there. And two other interesting things, SNL debuted, Love SNL, it debuted in 1975, and Jimmy Hoffa disappeared in 1975. So we still don't know where he is. He's probably in the Meadowlands somewhere, but... Jimmy Hoffer disappeared. 
Well, you mentioned SNL, so I'll just give you a hot take. The original SNL cast, 1 billion percent overrated. Dude, dead wrong. Dead wrong. All right. Well, you know, maybe I, another show. I, I think we can I think we can argue that on another show. I I I'm I'm going to challenge you that we discuss that on another show. So All right. Okay, so that's what was going on socially. Let me tell you about what was happening in music at the time. So, um what we've got is in the last show we talked about the last two shows actually we talked about 1977 and 1984 and how in 77 the year that uh Billy Joel's The Stranger came out there was only seven distinct number one albums in 84 when Purple Rain came out there was only five distinct number one albums well in 1975 there were 20 distinct number one albums 20 distinct number one albums in a year with 52 weeks so that's you know, really telling you how the musical landscape was kind of all over the place, right? There wasn't anything dominating. No album was number one for longer than six consecutive weeks. And Elton John was probably the biggest, uh, I, I guess you could say he was at the peak of his powers at the time because he had three different number one albums that year. So of the 20 distinct number ones, three of them were Elton John albums. He had the uh, greatest hits album, which was number one for the first five weeks of the year and was also the top seller for the year. He had Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy, and that was number one for a total of seven weeks, but it was six weeks in one shot and then another single week. And then he had an album called Rock of the Westies, which was number one for three weeks. So a total of 15 weeks, Elton John was number one uh, during the year with three albums. Um, Some other uh, longer running number ones were Led Zeppelin with Physical Graffiti and The Eagles' One of These Nights for five weeks. Okay, so that's uh, you know some of the key number ones. What was going on with uh, musically with other albums? Do you have anything? So yeah, so there was a lot actually. So you you mentioned Floyd and you mentioned Zeppelin. Um, there's a lot of albums on the Rolling Stone Top 500 album list that were made in 1975. Patti Smith, Horses, Parliament, The Mothership Connection, Bob Dylan and the Band made the Basement Tapes. You've got Toots and the Maytals, awesome reggae music, Funky Kingston. Queen, A Night at the Opera, Dylan, Blood on the Tracks, and not to mention Fleetwood Mac, the very first Fleetwood Mac with Buckingham and Nicks in 75. It was a great year in music. So while there were certainly a lot of great albums that came out, you know, some of the top singles of the year didn't really reflect those awesome albums. The number one song for the year was Love Will Keep Us Together by Captain and Tennille. You've got Rhinestone Cowboy by Glenn Campbell and Philadelphia Freedom by Elton John. Both, you know, perfectly fine songs, but, you know, not iconic songs. You've got Before the Next Teardrop Falls and My Eyes Adored You were the number four and five singles of the year. Those songs were oldies when they came out. Those songs are songs for like our great grandparents. The fact that My Eyes Adored You was was 75 is crazy. Like I, I love Frank. Frankie Valley's awesome, but sure. like, it just yeah does not sound like a mid '70s song. Those before the next teardrop falls and my eyes adored you. Great songs. Those songs are like from the '50s or should belong in the '50s. So it's crazy that those songs were top five singles uh, at this time. Some other uh, top singles were "Thank God I'm a Country Boy." So that's how John Denver had that number uh, number two number one album. You had "Loving You" by Minnie Riperton. Loving you is easy because you're beautiful. Can you hit that high F? <laughs> no, I cannot. <laughs> <laughs> Only John Stamos's brother. So uh, you've got Jive Talking, Lady Marmalade, The Hustle, and Kung Fu Fighting. Dude, I love that song. That is an <laughs> awesome song. So the singles weren't necessarily 
awesome, even though the albums really, there were some really excellent albums. There was one awesome single in the year, Fame, the the Bowie-Lennon collaboration. Yeah. Awesome song. Well, I uh, intentionally left that off because I'm trying to illustrate the point that... (laughs) You're sandbagging, dude. You're sandbagging. (laughs) All right, I sandbagged. Okay, so that covers the top singles for the year. So why don't we talk about some of the basic information about the album? The album was recorded at 914 Sound Studios in Blauvelt, New York. It's some town south of Nyack in Rockland County. And they started recording in May of 1974. The producers at the start of the album were Bruce Springsteen and Mike Appel, who were the producers for the previous two albums. And Mike Appel was also Bruce's manager at the time. The production for the album moved to the record plant in New York City when the third producer joined the operation, and that was a gentleman named John Landau, who, Bill, I think you're going to talk to us a little bit about later on. So that's the basics about the production of the album. So, Bill, can you tell us a little bit about the album art? So the album art is iconic. Uh, It is a very simple picture on the album cover. It's basically Bruce leaning up against Clarence Clemens, the, the sax player. And it is a picture that they took over 600 different snaps to, to actually get. And there's this one just popped to the photographer. And it, it actually wasn't the one that Bruce liked, but it was one that popped to the photographer. And then the, the record producer and, and the uh, execs at Columbia agreed with the photographer and said, that's the one. And it's become really an iconic album cover. And when you think about the impact that it's had, it's actually impacted a lot of album covers that have come on after that. So um, you've got Cheap Trick who did a exact replica almost of that album cover. Um, anytime Sesame Street is, is replicating something. So Sesame Street, Born to Add, you've got Cookie Monster and, and Bert on, on the cover doing the Clarence Clemens and Bruce Springsteen. So and then there's a whole string of other albums that did the same thing. Um, it, it's just a really cool picture. And what winds up happening is in a lot of the live concerts, while Clarence Clements was still alive, they would actually strike that pose on stage until the crowd realized it and it would go nuts. <laughs> so they would totally play to the crowd that that iconic image. And it really is just a, a very memorable album cover. Very nice. All right. So, Tony, why don't I do a little bit of artist background, then I'm going to hand it over to you to talk a little bit about kind of this, the, the run up uh, in albums, at least. So from a, from a background perspective, uh, you and I grew up in New Jersey. For the, you know, I grew up entirely in New Jersey. You grew up mostly in New Jersey. You know, Bruce Springsteen's huge in, in Jersey, right? He's, he's the original Jersey guy, right? So born in Monmouth Medical Center in Long Branch, grew up in Freehold, went to St. Rose of Lima Catholic School in, in early education, then graduated from Freehold High School. And he was a quiet kid. He wasn't really good at a lot of things. He was not an athlete. He didn't participate in activities. He really only gravitated towards music and, and art. And it was really a solitary thing for him. So as a child, he would go with his mom to his aunt's house and his aunt and his mom and his grandmother, his, his older Italian grandmother, would just be upstairs speaking Italian to each other and he didn't understand a word of it. And he would sit downstairs with his aunt's piano and he would just practice and try to teach himself how to learn the piano. And his aunt heard him and was like, you know, you're getting better at it. She gave him a key to her house so he could come over and practice and learn to play the piano. And he he's self-described as 
an okay pianist and he, he feels like I, I never really quite got great at playing piano, but I'm good at least playing for myself. So he can, he can play a lot on the piano and actually the album born to run was written on the piano, which is a, a different thing for Bruce. Cause most of his al albums are written on the guitar born to run was written on the piano. So it actually comes from a lot of that experience growing up and, and whatnot and learning the piano and, and banging out songs on the piano. So uh, his dad, was a bus driver. His mom was the breadwinner of the family and was a legal secretary. His dad, Irish and Dutch background, his mom, Italian. And the other thing I thought was really interesting is the, the name Springsteen is actually Dutch and it comes from what is literally translated as jump stone or stepping stone. So that's a little bit about Bruce and kind of who he was and where he came from. You know, so I'll ask our buddies from Manalpin, didn't the uh, legendary Doc Hussey, uh, who taught many of us uh, English at Manalpin, didn't he also teach Bruce? I think he did in Freehold, yeah. Yeah, I, I have a recollection of that as being part of the I, lore. I, I'm pretty sure. I never had him as a teacher, but I'm pretty sure I heard that story. Yeah. All right. So now we've got the lead up to this album. So Bruce had come out with two really well-received, at least critically well-received albums, uh, Greetings from Asbury Park and uh, The Wild, The Innocent, and The E Street Shuffle. Both of those albums came out in 73, critically well-received, a number of really good songs on those albums, but they didn't sell 250,000 copies altogether between the two of them. So nobody was buying, and Bruce was really feeling that pressure. He was thinking that... If this album, this next album that they were working on didn't sell, he was pretty sure that he was going to get dropped from Columbia Records. So there was a lot of pressure and strain in this production process for him. Specifically, when he was signed to Columbia, it was Clive Davis and John Hammond who were at Columbia and Clive Davis left. So a large portion of his support wasn't at Columbia oh, anymore. That would explain, you know, additionally why he had that, that looming feeling of needing this to be a hit. Absolutely. Okay, so why don't we get to our next segment, The Something You Didn't Know. Bill, we, we talked a little bit about John Landau. Is there something you want to tell us about him? A absolutely. But before I go into the Something You Didn't Know segment, I'm, I'm actually going to have a request for our audience, Tony. So first, I want to say thank you to my helpers in research this week. So uh, Chris gave me a some help on some research, and uh, my sister Georgia gave me some help on some research. So I want to say thank you. But I also want to put a challenge out there to our audience. So if we're telling everybody what's coming up next album-wise, I would love for people to reach out to us with some cool things that you and I may not know. So let's crowdsource it, okay? So please hit Tony and I up with things that we may not know that we can share, and we're going to give you a shout-out if you do that. That sounds amazing. And boy, we could have used this for Bruce because I'm certain there are plenty of Bruce fanatics that know a lot more about Bruce than we do. A hundred percent. That's actually what made me think of it, Tony. <laughs> Like I'm struggling with this one, so it would have been so much easier to, to, to outsource this one. So, uh, so anyway, that's the ask going forward. So let me jump into the something you may you may not know. So I didn't know this. Um, you know, Bruce fanatics might know this, but I didn't know this. So, so leading up to the album, Tony mentioned the struggles that were going on and where Bruce was from a mindset perspective. He really was just conflicted about how do I actually take it to the next level? And how do I actually get success? And the band had problems and he had some members of the band leave and they had to bring some new, some new members into to the band. That's where Max Weinberg came in and, and you know, a few of the other members of the band came in. And 
they started touring and they started doing shows. And there's a specific show that took place on May 9th, 1974 at Harvard Square and a music critic named John Landau, Tony mentioned John Landau before, was at the show. And John Landau was blown away by what he saw. So I'm going to give a few quotes from the article that John Landau wrote. He wrote an article that was published in The Real Paper. It was a Boston-based paper that got a lot of coverage, and it actually had snippets that made it to Rolling Stone and and a lot of other places. So he was a well-known music critic, and this actually really helped Bruce... Tremendously. So yeah, and and Bill, you know, he wasn't just a well-known music critic; he was an original writer for Rolling Stone for magazine. Stone. Yeah, absolutely. He, so this he, is a, this is a big name, a really yeah. big name, right? So for, first quote: On a night when I needed to feel young, he made me feel like I was hearing music for the first time. Amazing. That's that's like ridiculous praise from a music critic. Yeah. So then he then he goes on to say, I saw my rock and roll past flash before my eyes. I saw something else. I saw rock and roll's future and its name is Bruce Springsteen. It's an incredible quote and was definitely used in the marketing, but also in a way, in some ways became an albatross for Bruce. Incredibly. Yes. A hundred percent. And you get a lot of the articles that I've read, you get the tie-in from Bruce to Dylan and then Dylan to Guthrie. And one of one of the ones that I read was like basically picking on both Dylan and Bruce and we're like, well, Gu- Guthrie's the only really original. The other, you know, the two of you just copied him. Um, so it, it's just, it's, yeah, it really did become an albatross around his neck. Mm-hmm. So, um, so the, the last quote from that is, when his two hour set ended, I could only think, can anyone really be this good? Can anyone say this much to me? Can rock and roll speak with this kind of power and glory? It was just a glowing, glowing review from a huge, huge name in, in music and, a, and, a, and someone who's subsequently been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. This is a big name guy, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of that came from his work with Bruce. But he was a big name guy before that with regards to you know, his work with Rolling Stone and just involvement in, in writing for music. So, so, so just, but for context, just remember, and, and you said these dates, but just want to make sure everyone understands. So this is Bruce and the band touring behind the first two records. This is before Born this, to Run. This is Born 70, to Run wasn't even done. Right. This, this is May of 74 when he's just starting to write mm-hmm. Born to Run, the song, right? Yeah. So you've got all this pressure going on and he winds up meeting with Landau and, and, you know, this happens as he's trying to do the album, as Tony said before. So he he's working with Appel and they're they're you know, he wrote Born to Run and he's struggling and he's he's just not making any progress. So he meets with Landau and, and Landau basically sa- says, Look, you're amazing. I-, I can help you and I'd love to be a part of this. And they wind up agreeing to work together. They they bring him into the process. As Tony mentioned, they go they move on to moving at to recording at the record plant. And then what happens is You've got a few things that build on top of the the Landau press that he got. You've got a few things where Appel puts some music out there for him, for him to be out on record stations. So you've got a couple of concerts that were broadcast live, the first of which on MMR, the second of which on NEW, where people actually got to hear Bruce live on public radio and just blew the audience away. And there was a real clamor and there was something for columbia to actually go market to and that's what wound up happening so they took and these that live, 
and these live performances, I think they did include Born to Run, the the, the song. The, the the second one did. The first the first one included She's the One, Jungle Land. And at the time, the song was called Wings for Wheels, which wound up becoming Thunder Road. Mm-hmm. So it had a, you know, the first one in MMR had a, had a few songs. The second one had Born to Run. So you've got these things are kind of building on each other. And then Columbia is actually able to go market it with the quotes from Landau's article, the press that he's getting from the radio stations, the airplay that he's getting from these kind of bootlegged recordings of, of his live shows. He's, he's got buzz and, and he winds up getting on the cover of both Time and Newsweek the same week. That's really kind of rare, right? So Appel, while he and Appel wound up you know, splitting and, and arguing over a lot of things, he actually was pretty successful at getting his, his name out there and, and putting him out there and, and really helping Born to Run kind of jump up. So that's what I've got. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if some of the big fans probably knew that, but I didn't. Yeah, the one that I've had a couple of pieces I'd add there is um, there was another uh, key DJ in Cleveland that was uh, given some of this uh, material to to play, and he loved it so much that he played it every day at five fifty five p.m. Uh, to sort of kick off happy hour. So um, really get building that support on album oriented rock stations like uh, in Cleveland, Philly and New York was a big part of creating that hype, but also added to the pressure because now you've got a clamor for this new album, which doesn't exist. He's got one song. He's got one song. And now people are talking. When are we getting this album? And there's no album. And, and it took him a while. So yeah. one of the, one of the things I did in studying for the the pod today was I listened to the uh, Rick Rubin, Malcolm Gladwell podcast with Bruce Springsteen, their Broken Record pod, and Bruce talked about some albums really are really easy, and it takes three weeks to write the album, and you can record them in days and whatnot. And some are just painful. And this one, it took a long time. It took over a year from when this kind of process started to actually getting the album done. And the last track that they finished was Jungle Land. They finished it like minutes, minutes before they left for their tour. They were, Bruce and Clarence Clements were in the studio working on the, the saxophone solo down to the wire on that, on that album. So they, they were really just, and Bruce wasn't even happy with it. He's like, it's not done. And, and they're like, nope, you're done. Yeah. Save it for the next album. Yeah. So you mentioned a couple of things. Um, you, you mentioned how he this was composed on piano, and and that's going to be really, in my opinion, really important too. Because this album, you mentioned how the piano player, the original piano player, was replaced. It was a gentleman uh, named David uh, Sanchez, who was the original E Street Band piano player, and he's the guy who's on Born to Run, the the the, the track. But then he leaves. He and the drummer, Ernest Boom Carter, uh, left to form a jazz trio. And that's when Max Weinberg and Roy Bitten come on board to play drums and piano. And that is a crucial change, in my opinion, because Roy Bitten is the unheralded musical influence for Bruce for the next 20 years. He is the guy that brings that in- incredible piano playing that you hear in Backstreets and Thunder Road. All of that is because Roy comes on board and joins I, the team. I agree 
And that is a change. Like clearly they had both an organist in Danny Federici and, and uh, Sanchez. So they had keyboards, but the focus and the style of the piano playing changes when Roy Bitten joins uh, the, the band. And, and Bruce can tinkle around on the keyboard, but he's not, yeah. Yeah, but, but 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 the thing is is because these songs are written in piano, it kind of makes it easier to uh for Roy to then build on that. 100%. Yeah. yeah. And and you get one of the things you get with this album is you get a little bit of that Phil Spector-ish wall of sound feeling with this album where they where they have, you know, this the layers layers of sound and it's it's phenomenal. Yeah. So that's, you know, so those are key changes uh, to the personnel that really influence everything that happens. And, and just to uh, emphasize how important Roy, is, Roy Bitten is to the whole process, when Bruce fires the E Street Band, if you remember, he fired the band. He fired everyone and then rehired Roy Bitten. And Roy talks about how freaking awkward it was because you know, he's the only one that gets brought back. And now he's, he's in this new band, but he's still, well, slowly, you know, he slowly, slowly, they all came back. Yeah. yeah they, they, they all came, but still it, that was a, that was a big deal. And, and the fact that Roy is the only one that comes back tells you how important his piano playing uh, influence was on Bill and uh, on Bill, on Bruce and his, uh, and his music. The other important thing that I'll, I'll mention is, and, and we could do two shows on this guy. Uh, oh, yeah, I mean, I, you, I think you know I know where I'm you're going. going. Yeah, yeah, is is Jimmy Iovine who comes in as, to as the sound engineering? Yeah, absolutely. And and Jimmy Iovine is is uh, a multi billionaire now, but at the time he was just a, an engineer. He wasn't even a producer. He's an engineer, basically known for being a friend of John Lennon, and that's how he got his foot in the door, really, in into the music business and. Um, but Jimmy Iovine comes in, engineers this record once John Landau comes on board. So he didn't work on Born to Run. He works on the rest of it. Yep. And and then basically half of the music, probably more than most of the music I love today is some way connected to Jimmy Iovine. So he's, he's so incredibly impactful and prolific in what he's touched. I, I completely agree. Yeah. So, um, so those actually, I'm sorry, those weren't even my, some things you didn't know. So. I was going to say, like, <laughs> dude, like, like you're, you're helping me out here. You're fleshing this out. This is yeah. awesome. Yeah. I, I, the more I kept looking into Roy and Iovine, I said, geez, man, I could do two shows on these guys. Um, so I'll, so I'll give you a short nugget then on the, something you might not know. I really love this one. So born to run, you know, sort of the conceit of the song is, you know, uh, a, a boy singing to Wendy about escaping. Is that a fair synopsis? Mm-hmm. Yep. Turns out, do you know where that inspiration came from? I, I, I don't know the detail. I've heard some rumblings, but I don't know the detail. Turns out that Bruce, living in Long Branch, in his bedroom, had a poster of Peter Pan over his bed. Peter Pan beckoning at the, you know, at the window to Wendy to come out and fly away with him. I think that that's that's brilliant. Yeah, I love it. I can't. I, believe, I mean, yeah. I'm trying to picture a rundown house in Long Branch with you know, and and li- literally his house. I mean, he describes it as like it was a you know crappy two story like beat up house in in Long Branch, uh, and just nothing to look at and not not a great place to grow up. But and he's got a poster of Peter Pan over his bedroom. It's crazy. So, um, 
So to me, that I, that is amazing to me is just that idea. Because then when I start listening to the song through that lens, I said, oh, I can, I really can, I can see that. So there I, you go. So I, Peter I, Pan. No, I, I love it. I love it. So the, the other the other thing that I, I think we could maybe just add as a little nugget is, Tony, do you know how many number one hits Bruce Springsteen has had? I don't know that he's had any. Well, he's written one. He wrote one number one hit, but he didn't sing it. So Manford Mann's Earth Band actually sang the number one hit that Bruce Springsteen wrote. And they sang Blinded by the Light, which was a Bruce Springsteen song. And and he's only got one number two song, which is Dancing in the Dark. The other number two song that he's got was done by the Pointer Sisters, Fire. Yeah. So he he is also a, a, just an amazing writer, and he's got this massive catalog of things that he hasn't even re- released. He did a, a you know a box set where he released a lot of things, but he still got this massive back catalog of things that he hasn't released. And on his most recent album, he's got two songs that he wrote 50 years ago on that album. Wow. Well, and then you know you think about uh, you know artists like Patti Smith and uh, Natalie Merchant both of whom have probably their most well-known songs were both because of the night. Yep. Okay. So I guess that's our, something you might not know. I'd love to know from our, our huge boss fans. Did we give you anything that you didn't know? Because this was a struggle. We, we had to work on this one and I, and I, I I'm not, I'm not sure on this one. I'm not yeah. sure whether we gave the, 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 the deep Bruce fans something they didn't know. All right, so I guess that takes us to our next segment, which is the track review. Oh, this is going to be fun. All right, so Tony, the album starts out, track one comes right out, of, right out of the blocks with Thunder Road. So I guess, do I pick first this week? You pick first this week. So, okay, you, so you, you, you have fair game to say whatever right. you want. Yes. <laughs> so Thunder Road is in my personal top 10, possibly top five songs of all time. I can't tell you enough how much I love this song. This song, everything about it is great from the way it opens with just the the harmonica and the piano and just the cinematic quality of it all. And, and it's funny, the cinematic quality, because it actually was inspired by a movie poster. There was a 1950 50s movie starring Robert Mitchum, I think, called Thunder Road. And he and he liked the title and he liked the poster. He never even saw the movie, but he liked the <laughs> title and he liked the poster. Yeah, that's so that's so me. That's something I would do is <laughs> not see the movie like the poster and 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 well, write a song about well, like, it. Like, like I mentioned before, the song was titled Wings for Wheels. He didn't have a, a good, cool title for it. And and he actually had it in his live sets as wings wings for wheels. So Thunder Road is just um just an iconic track and I think that I'll I'll just tell you now it's going to be my number 1 pick. I can't blame you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I really kind of was rethinking uh the fact that I chose this album and 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 I don't get the number 1 pick. Um so I I'm a little bummed that I don't get the number 1 pick this week mm-hmm. and I'll just say that. All right. <laughs> Okay, so uh, any thoughts on Thunder Road, or do you want no, to tell they, us about? I, I, I think uh, you know Th- Thunder Road. You, you said everything that I, I I would have said. I mean, I, I would probably like to move on to Tenth Avenue Freeze Out because I'm going to ask you, Tony, what is a Tenth Avenue Freeze Out? Because I've done a lot of research on it, and there are you know Bruce for years would say he didn't know what it was. It was just something and whatnot. And then with the Super Bowl show, he kind of talked about it a little bit. And I mean, to me, very clearly, it's kind of the band coming together. Like it mm-hmm. is, it is Bruce and the E Street Band coming together as a band. And you know, he talks about 
uh, Scooter, which is his nickname. He talks about the big man, which is Clarence Clemens. Uh, you know, he, ta he talks, you know, 10th Ave, 10th Ave in Belmar. You know, he's got all of the stuff going on about where the band was playing, some of the challenges they were having, coming together as a band. And, you know, there's some allusion to the fact that the freeze out was that, you know, he couldn't play all of the clubs that, that whatnot. I don't know if that's true or not, but I think more, more to the fact it's kind of like the band gelling and it's the, 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 the struggle and the challenges of kind of coming together as a band. That's kind of what I got out of it. I love the song. I absolutely love the song. It's a good song on the album and it's an even better song live. It's just uh, yes. an absolute banger in concert. Oh, it's yeah, Treme tremendous live song. Yeah. All right. So then the third track we've got is Night. So I would say this is my least favorite song on the album. Um, it, it's, an, it's a good song. It's a nice song, but it's not something that stands out amongst the other tracks. I would say the other seven tracks are all, again, I, I could look at the other seven tracks and say best of type album. Um, I look at this track and go, it's a nice, it's a nice track. It's okay. Yeah. You know what? I, uh, as I was listening to the album, I had this originally, I had this at the bottom, but I think I might like it a little bit better. Uh, the more I listen to it, I, I like it as a pairing with backstreets, which is the next song. I kind of like the idea of, of, you know, night and, and just, you know, the workers, you know, ending their day. And then like, you know, then the backstreets, like, you know, what happens, you know, after two o'clock, you know? Well, and the whole album really layers together incredibly well. Like, I, I think that's one of the things of why, why this is in my top 20 is that the songs connect and tell us the album tells a story, which mm -hmm. is why I love the album. Yeah. And it might not necessarily be one, one story altogether, but they're stories about it's, like a, a glimpse into American life yes. or, or and, Bruce's and, picture of American life. And, and specifically, you know, there's a lot about just him at the time and the band coming together and how, th how things were going and, and what was going on. And you know, you got the back streets, you've got the night, you've got 10th Avenue freeze out, all, all of them kind of relate to what was going on for them as a band. Mm -hmm. So, all right. So take us to back streets. So Backstreets, I, I love the vocals on, on Backstreets and just kind of the repetitive uh, component of, of that and the way that the song layers together with the piano and, and the vocals. And it just, it's, it's an awesome song. So Backstreets is an amazing song. And, and I'll mention too how, you know, we, we talk often about the concept of albums and sides, right? So Backstreets is intentionally the last track on side one, and it's meant to pair with Jungle Land, which closes out uh, uh, side two, similar to the way uh, Thunder Road and Born to Run are supposed to be paired leading off sides on one and two. Uh, so Backstreets just as a song, I, I have to tell you that I don't love the Bruce version as much as I do another version. Really? Yeah, I put it up on our Facebook page, um, or I think I put it up on the Facebook page. I know I put it up on mine. So um, really, we'll put a link on the show notes to this video. Actually, it's not a video. It's a YouTube of just the audio because uh, I couldn't find the song. But my one of my favorite singers of all time, Marie McKee, uh, did this song. And this recording happens to be at a show that Colleen and I were at. And I can actually hear my my cheers at the end of of uh, Maria's version oh, that's very of cool. this. And Maria does it's just her and a piano, 
she's an incredible vocalist and just hearing her vocal isolated vocals and this incredible piano playing which you know goes back to the whole Roy Bitten of it all um, is just amazing so I highly commend you to check out the Maria McKee Backstreet's version uh, we'll I have that on the check, page I will definitely check that out I, I I'm it's going to be hard pressed to replace the Bruce version in my mind but I, I, I will definitely I think check it, it out. might be we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the connection to um, Stevie Nicks. <laughs> we, we should have mentioned when we were talking about Jimmy before, but Jimmy uh, was involved with Stevie Nicks uh, for a number of years. That he, that he was. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, again, how all these people get connected. They all eventually get connected because of Stevie. So, so next up is side two and we've got born to run the, the, the title track of the album is leading off side two. Um, Rolling Stones number 21 song, greatest song of all time and their 500 greatest songs of all time. It's got the full Phil Spector wall of sound approach on it. It is just 100% a rock classic and I can't not get excited every time I hear the song. Like I I, I like it's a visceral like you, you kind of get a little charged every time I hear the song. It's just an awesome song. What more can you say? It's born to run. So it's an awesome song, and gosh darn, if they didn't put in the time to put it together, right? Oh my goodness! So that that song took so long for them to finish. Like it was, it was the, you know, it's like their version of the the chain, right? So the the song it took so darn long to yeah. finish. Right? Well, but the difference is that um, six months of working on this song exclusively. Yeah. It's not like they kept coming back to it and they could never quite finish it. Six months, and this is all they got out of the first six months of recording. Yep. But I guess if if six months yields you this, you're so, doing something right. So in the, the interview I I was listening to with Bruce, he really talked about that his he doesn't he said finding the album is the challenging thing for him. Sometimes the, the songs just come out and sometimes they don't. And with this one, they didn't. And finding the album, like he had to find the album and finding Born to Run was the lead into finding the rest of the album. And he, and that's really kind of how it flowed. And he found Born to Run and he was able to find the rest of the album. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the um, the rest of the album was done in, you know, less time than it took for them to do uh, which, Born to Run. Yeah, which, I mean, just completely you know jives with his his way of explaining how he you know how he writes so so next up is she's the one so something that i didn't know about this one was that um part of the original lyrics for she's the one he lifted and dropped into backstreets i wasn't aware of that yeah so now he had a half done she's the one and he had to you know find new lyrics to finish off the song and so that was actually a challenge for him to finish this one was because he had taken part of it and uh, put it into Backstreet. So what do you make of this song? So it's another great song for me. You know, I think that he's got, um, he's got a great sax solo in this song. And I think, you know, one of the things that I read is that part of the writing of the song was he wanted to have a, a cool sax solo in it. And it, it really does. I mean, w- one of the things that I've actually been talking a lot about lately with you know people who uh, I talk around me that I talk to these albums about is how how much I miss saxophone in in current music like you don't get sax you don't get the instrumentation that you got in some of these 70s and 80s and whatnot albums and and specifically saxophone is just so rich in how it plays in in music it's got a texture to it that you don't quite get with with some other instruments and 
I think it plays well in this song. Yeah, sax was almost ubiquitous in rock and roll for a long time. It, it was, and you just don't hear it so much anymore. And then, you know, when you go back and watch St. Elmo's Fire, the movie. Oh, I love that movie. <laughs> and, and, and you... And we, you know, when it came out, it wasn't ridiculous. At least the idea that, you know, you had this, you know, sax cool sax player. Yeah. yeah. Right. It was just like, oh, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Could you imagine that coming out now? Like what this guy, people are coming to this bar to watch this sax band. Dude, Clarence Clemens was in Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. <laughs> yeah. And you didn't blink. It was like, cool. It wasn't like, oh, that's weird. <laughs> So now we're at meeting across the river. This is a little bit of an oddball, don't you think? Just going to say this is Chris's favorite song of all time. What? Um, yes, this is like her favorite Bruce song. Like whenever whenever I go to listen to this album, she's like, just put, up, put meeting across the river on. I'm like, wow. I, I, so she absolutely loves this song. Um, for me, I, it's it's cool because it's Bruce and the piano, and, and you're going back to you know the the piano of it, right? It's Bruce and the piano, and it's Bruce telling a story, which this whole, the whole, one of the things I love about this album is it's Bruce telling a story. Going back to the last podcast with Billy Joel, the, the, the comparison with Billy Joel and Bruce Springsteen, they're both storytellers. And I, I love that. I love the storyteller component of, of this. And this song specifically is cool in that it's telling the story about, you know, these, these kind of bad guys who are trying to do some, you know, you know, mob type stuff. And, you know, they're going to have a meeting across the river and it's just, it's cool. I, I, it's, it's a slower jazz. It's very jazzy. It's very stripped down. It's a cool song. So it's, it's interesting that you brought up the Billy Joel comp because immediately I, I was listening to this. I said, this should have been on the stranger. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, and I, frankly, I don't like it. You know, I'm not sure if I don't like the song altogether or if I don't like it on the album because I just feel like it doesn't fit. Like we've been talking about this album and it being, you know, a story, a picture, and I don't feel like it quite fits. I'm, I have a, a a little bit of a barrier on this song. It just doesn't. The rest of it to me is a, of a piece. And I feel like this one just doesn't quite fit quite right. That's fair. All right. So what that's telling you is that, you know, you can get that at number eight and it'll be Chris's favorite song and you'll get it the last pick. Unless I've been sandbagging you. I, I made no promises that I'm getting that song. So <laughs> feel free to pick it, please. All right. So now we're at the last track, Jungle Land. So Jungle Land, it, it's one of those epic sweeping songs. Uh, you know, you've got a story that kind of goes and it rises and falls. And you've got that sax solo that they worked on to the last minute that is just an epic sax solo in it. It's a great song. I mean, I, I, I can't say enough amazing things about the song. It, it really, for me, it's kind of scenes, for, scenes from an Italian restaurant -y. It's like that type of a sweeping epic type song. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think Jungle Land is great too. And and going back to Billy Joel again, um, we talked about how he had the nine. Uh, Billy had nine tracks on the Stranger, and we wish that he would have just kept that at eight. And just because you have forty two minutes, you don't need to use all of it. And I feel like um, Bruce does that here because this album is under forty minutes. Yep, he left four minutes of potential recording he, on the table he, he did and he didn't well but th that goes back to he he didn't think he was done with the album and he got pushed by landau you're done we're done 
That's it. Leave it for the next album. So yeah. he did exactly that tone. But that was Landau pushed that. But that's a good call because if you've got 40 good minutes, you've got 40 good minutes. You don't need to, you know, don't squeeze on, you know, just another track just for the sake of it. Right. Yep. So yep. Jungle Land is a darker, grittier song. Born to Run is, you know, it's a little bit more optimistic and Jungle Land is a little bit more darker and grittier. Thunder Road is, you know, optimistic in tone and Backstreets is a little darker and grittier and i think both pairs are just incredible pairs of songs and that that is one of the things i love about this album is the way that it's structured and the the way that it's laid out i think it is laid out brilliantly agree so i've come around so long story short i've come around born to run i guess I, i once i peeled back that bias and that contrarian nature uh i've come to appreciate it it's a phenomenal album it really is yeah. all right so that wraps that segment up so i guess that we get to the song draft oh, we've kind of telegraphed some of the picks already oh my goodness uh, yeah we've we've kind of telegraphed some of the picks but we get to close out last week's song draft tony oh. aren't you curious as to what happened last week tone you finally won you finally won so you, you know you you said you were going to go on a streak now so let's let's see how that wound up Look, so look, we'll we'll do the data analysis and and all that, but I can't tell you how many messages I got telling me you absolutely got crushed. Me, I got crushed. I had I had our friend uh, Chico's wife Meg texted me, and I didn't even know that she knows how to listen to a podcast. She texts me and says, "I love Billy Joel. I listened to the podcast. I wanted to vote for you no matter what, so that you could finally win." but I couldn't vote for you. <laughs> she said. All right. So let's close out last week's song, song draft poll. So Tony, I am on the stranger song draft poll site. I am officially closing the poll. We are no longer accepting responses. So Tony, things are back to right in the world. <laughs> what I want to know is this. So we, we know what happened. Did I get even one vote? You got one vote. I got literally one vote? You got literally one vote. Oh, my God. And when we look at the votes for song, you the favorite track on the album, only two votes for one of your songs, only The Good Die Young. Well, that goes to show you, I don't know Jack about Billy Joel. So, and just the other thing to share with everybody. So the question that we asked is, do you want Billy Joel to make another album or is 12 enough? And the preponderance of the audience by just a sn- just a s- scooch over, so just a little bit more than 50%, wants him to make another album. Huh. You guys are all wrong. <laughs> you're you're going to insult, insult the audience again. I love it. I love it. You go right back to, right back to the playbook. <laughs> you guys are all wrong. He doesn't have anything else to say. Why, just fork over your $200, go see him at the garden, I bought let him play to, the hits. I bought tickets to go see him in October. I am excited. Yeah. Exactly. And be excited and enjoy it. You know, do you really want to spend that 200 bucks and then lose out on four classic songs uh, so that he could play four of the new ones? Do you guys really want that? No, I don't. You don't. I don't. I don't. I don't. I'm happy. I'm happy. So, yeah. all right. So song draft for this episode. So just a reminder, our song draft is where Tony and I uh, take turns picking songs from the album we create a little team of songs a little roster of songs each of us whoever chose the album for the week lets the other person select first 
So since I selected the album this week, Tony gets to select first. And at the end, we will post a link in our episode description for the podcast. We'll also post a link in our on our Facebook page uh, that will allow people to click and go to our draft. It's a it's a Google Doc, and we'll ask who you think won the song draft. We'll ask what your favorite song on the album is, and we might ask another question. And I'm not sure we've got something this week, but if we if we think of something, we'll we'll uh, we'll put it up there. So. That's a little bit about what our song draft is. And so far, Tony's struggling a little bit, but he's got the first pick this week. So it's a good week to have the first pick. Yeah, I'd really love to know. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing from the audience what their favorite songs are, because is, you know, is Born to Run going to you know get a lot of play here? Or does everybody know that Thunder Road is the best song in this album? So looking forward to finding that out. I'm going to pick Thunder Road with number one. So, so Tony, um, I'm going to disagree that Thunder Road's the best song on the album. Hmm. Um, and, and I'm not going Born to Run either. Uh, so I am going Jungle Land with my, with my pick because that is my favorite Bruce Springsteen song. And it is the best song on the album. So full disclosure, I uh, did a couple of mock drafts with... <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're actually gaming this. I can't believe it. Did some mock drafts with Rick and Will and Dave. And the question really was, after Bill takes Born to Run at number two, do I take Jungle Land at number three? So now I'm kind of stuck because I feel like I have to take Born to Run at three. Go right ahead. Because I want to win. Take what, and- you think, take, take what you think is right, Tone. It's, it's, I'm not going to help you. You, you've you've already done multiple mock drafts, so like you should know what to do here. Yeah, but my draft board's been blown up. <laughs> I, I'm I'm pausing because I am actually. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. This is great. Uh, I have to go. Born to run. All right. I'll tell you that Rick told me what to do in the mock draft and I didn't follow his advice. So now I'm dying to know if Rick was right. So let's find out. So I'm going back streets at number four and Rick was right. Well, no. So Rick actually, he said I should go 10th Avenue freeze out. Oh, because, really? Oh, really? Yeah. oh but then Rick was, Rick was yeah. dead wrong. Then, then, then so, Rick, was, Rick was dead wrong. You can, you can take it. Go ahead. Yeah. So I'm going to go 10th Avenue freeze out. So I'm going to go. She's the one. Strategically, that's the right answer because I already told you I'm not taking meeting meeting across the river, and you already said that you don't like night. So, so now the question is, do I just spite you and take meeting across the river? I'm not a spiteful bastard. Night. So I would have taken meeting across the river higher. I didn't. Um, yeah. So I, I actually I like the song a lot personally too. Mm-hmm. Um, I but told, I told me you, you didn't like you told me you didn't <laughs> like it, so I left it for later. Um, so I definitely played a little bit of possum there. Yeah. I hosed myself out of she's the one you did. Yep. All right. So there we go. So to recap, I took thunder road with the number one pick, uh, born to run with the number three pick 10th Avenue freeze out with the number five and night with the number seven. And with the number two pick, I took jungle land with the number four pick. I took back streets with the number six pick. I took, she's the one. And with the number eight, 
eight pick, I took meeting across the river. You know, this kind of makes sense because I get the, the, the more optimistic songs in Thunder Road and Born to Run. You get more of the doom and gloom. I, I took the doom and gloom songs, yeah. yeah. I, I, and, and I love them. I, I love my draft. I guess we just pick to our personalities. Right, because you're Mr. Sunshine. Yep, got it. <laughs> you can't even keep a straight face, dude. <laughs> Comparatively speaking, in this audience, I'm Mr. Rogers in this audience. <sighs> All right, so I guess that brings us to the end. So, Bill, what are your final thoughts? So this album is one that I've listened to a lot in the past week. It's one that I've listened to a lot since I started this Rolling Stone Top 500 journey listening to the albums. I have grown to appreciate Bruce Springsteen enormously. So I've listened to pretty much his whole catalog since I've, I've started this Rolling Stone Top 500 listening. And as a storyteller, as, as a rock and roll icon, as, as a just amazing artist, this album is stories and music layered so well together. It's set up well as far as how it's set up on what's on side one what's on side two it tells a story of what was going on for bruce and the band it it tells a story of what was going on for the world in 75 you know difficult times running and fighting and dealing with different things and whatnot this album is brilliant and i am very very happy to have it in my top 20 of all time I'm very happy to continue listening to this. So when, when we're done with this, I will definitely keep listening to this album. This is a brilliant, brilliant album. So uh, what's your favorite Bruce song of all time? Jungle Land. What's your favorite Bruce song not on this album? Um, probably, you know, honestly, I'm going to say probably uh, Streets of Philadelphia, just because I like the dark kind of whatnot component of that song. And I saw him do it live and I really like it. Mine is Brilliant Disguise. I listen to every single time I listen to that. Talk about storytelling. I just think that that is utterly gripping storytelling. It's it's so personal and so vivid. And uh, I just love it. So as far as um, my thoughts on the album, same. You know, I um, hadn't, hadn't really listened to the album very much. You know, I knew all the major songs and Thunder Road's one of my favorite songs of all time. The thing that I really took away from this experience is is actually doing some of the research because I, I felt like I wanted to know a little bit more about Bruce because it's Bruce and and the audience would know more than than I did. And I came away doing more of a deep dive into Roy Bitten and Jimmy Iovine and just blown away by those guys. And especially Roy, I can't wait to really dig into some of the other stuff that he's done and, and listen to his music as far as his contributions to other uh, important works of music. And uh, one, you know, if I could just slip this one in, I want to give a shout out to our buddy Eon from Roto98, who is a huge Todd Rundgren fan. Max Weinberg and Roy Bitten are two of the guys who played on the entire Bat Out of Hell album. So what, whatever you think about Meatloaf, Bat Out of Hell is an iconic Oh, it's a great album. album, too. It's actually a really good album. It's incredible. And the band for that was Todd Rundgren, who was the producer and the guitar player, Max on drums, and Roy Bitten on 
uh, piano. And gosh, it's no wonder that, you know, you, you've got that incredibly epic songwriting and then you've got Roy and Max. It's, it's amazing. I, I really, I had no idea that those guys were the band for uh, Bad Out of Hell. Yeah. So I, I think that, you know, the other thing for me with, with Bruce specifically, and, and this was interesting in, in, you know, questions that came up in some of the interviews I listened to, the, the difference between how he approaches being a solo artist and how he approaches working with the E Street Band. And this is Bruce and the E Street Band. This is him and the band, him and the guys working together. And he says when he's working as a solo artist, it's very much about a an isolated inside out type approach to storytelling, writing, and mindset. And he, and he really likens that to the Irish side of his, of his, of his family and his personality and his, and his background. And when he's writing for the E Street Band, he thinks of it as a community versus this isolated feeling of when he's writing as a solo artist. Mm-hmm. And that he ties to his Italian side of his, of his heritage and his, and his family. And it's really interesting to kind of see that perspective. And when you listen to his discography, you can definitely hear it. You can hear that he definitely takes a, a different approach when he's a solo artist versus when he's working with the E Street Band. And it is a credit to the group that he's working with. That band is phenomenal. And they really, it isn't just Bruce and this bunch of guys in right. the background. Yeah. It really is a band. And I think they don't get as much credit. And you're 100% correct. Well, at least they did get recognition by, you know, for what it's worth, the Hall of Fame, right? So they did get inducted also as as a band themselves. But yeah, the the band is really an incredible group of musicians. All right, that gets us to the end here, Bill. So where does this fall in your final ranking? So I have moved this one probably as much as any album I've moved. Um, You say that literally every week. Yeah, I know. I know. I, I take this. I'm like a little bit obsessed with trying to, trying to get it right in my own head mm-hmm. uh, as far as where these albums. So you've got stack. a little bit of Bruce in you. Hey, I listen, do, I, you got to let it go. <laughs> well, I'm going to let it out in the world now, so I have to let it go, right? So, all right. So for me, this album, while it was number 21 on the most recent Rolling Stone list and it was number 18 previously, for me, this is the number 16 album of all time. This This is a phenomenal album. And, and it's, Again, going back to the band, this group working together to create this amazing artistry that winds up being born to run. All right. Well, that sounds good. I really have enjoyed listening to this album. I've become a fan and I'm looking forward to listening to this some more. Now, as far as what we're going to be listening to next. Well, you got to pick this this next album coming up. So I, I, I know uh, I, I was very curious where you were going with it. So I'll be honest. I don't know why the heck I picked this one. But here it is. Thriller by Michael Jackson. I'm going to get my glove on. I'm going to get my dancing shoes, do my Michael Jackson kick. (laughs) Uh, I am excited to listen to Thriller. Are you going to moonwalk out of the studio? I am going to moonwalk out of my little office here, yes. All right. So Michael Jackson's Thriller next week. All right, everybody, get ready for another exciting episode of Bill and Tony's Excellent Adventure coming up to you next week with the king of pop, Michael Jackson. <laughs> I think there's no better way to end it. Thank you, everybody. See ya.